Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Abundant Life Church. Uh, To those in the room with me, to those who are watching or listening online through a podcast, however you got here, we're so glad that you are part of this with us. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. And I want to encourage you, if you've got a journal, to go ahead and get that out. We are in week six of this series. We're going to close it out next week uh, called Say What? We are looking at misquoted verses of the Bible, uh, verses that are there, uh, but that we have uh, maybe understood the wrong way. And as we explore them a little bit more, uh, a little bit more depth, we find out maybe they mean something totally different. And so I want to encourage you to get that out. This is like a great series to write down notes, questions that you have, things that you want to study later, or maybe with your life group together. But we'd encourage you to do that, take advantage of that. Also, get your Bibles out. We're going to go to the back of the book, Revelation. Woo! Some of you have been in church a long time and you've not heard a preacher say Revelation because... Most preachers are afraid of it because the, Re- the book of Revelation is weird and bizarre and people get all kinds of crazy theories about it, uh, but I'm not scared. So let's go. Revelation chapter five. Uh, you want to get your spot there. And so if you've got a physical Bible with you, you're going to go all the way to the back. You'll find the book of Revelation. Uh, get your spot there in chapter five. If you've got a, a, a Bible app on a device. I encourage you to get that out as well. We'd love for you to read along uh, with us in just a moment. Uh, I was uh, reading recently, there was a zoo in Japan, and they were trying to make sure that all of their procedures were up to date, and, and to make sure that their staff was ready. If a, uh, an animal were to escape, uh, that the staff would know how to handle it. And, and so they ran a drill of what they would do uh, if, if an, uh, like a lion were to escape. And I don't know how you would envision, you know, how you would practice that, but The way they decided to do it was to get someone in a lion costume and have them walk around. And for our benefit, they videotaped it. Watch this. Now, my favorite part of the video uh, is watching the lions. Watch all this. And, you know, they got to be thinking, get a load of this. Okay, look at these guys. Because here's what they know. If a lion escapes... I don't think it's gonna look like that at all. I don't think it's gonna go like that drill remotely. And the worst part is, the zoo just taught the lions their emergency plan. (laughs) I don't think it's a good idea to teach them that, you know? So they're watching going, okay, so that's what they're gonna do if we get out, all right? Uh, But here's the reality. We know that a lion wouldn't behave like that, which is what makes this comical. Well, why do I show you that? Well, today we're going to look at a verse uh, in Revelation that talks about Jesus as a lion. And, and so uh, you may have heard of this idea that, that God is a lion, and maybe that's the way you have to think about him. But we're going to explore this. Now, you also might have heard, like, okay, not only he's got a lion, but he's also a lamb. And, and here's the deal. Uh, if you're a Christian for a long time and you've maybe read the Bible, you're like, yeah, yeah, the, that all makes sense. If you're new to this Christianity thing, you're new to the Bible, you're new to Jesus, you might be a little confused, like, what's going on here? There's a popular worship song called The Lion and the Lamb uh, that has uh, been popular for a number of years now, and it articulates this theology of of God, in particular Jesus, as both images. Here's uh, the the wording of some of the song. It says, our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles, and every knee will bow before you. 
Now, we like this verse, right? We like this. Uh, this is great, you know? So God's roaring with power. I like my God to be extra powerful. And he's gonna fight my battles. And, and so we go, yeah, I will worship a God like that. And then the next part goes like this. Our God is the lamb, the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. His blood breaks the chains and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Now here's where, again, depending on how new you are to this whole thing, you might be go, wait a minute, are you guys aware? Like these are opposite animals on the food chain. Like the lion eats the lamb. So like, how, is, how is God going to be both of these images? And again, if you've read these before, maybe you're like, yeah, yeah, no big deal. He can be both. I'll picture him as whichever one I want. You know, maybe it's like, what mood is Jesus in? Is he in a lion mood or a lamb mood? You know, it depends on the day. You know, and, and so a lot of us, we go back and forth between these and, and we don't really think about uh, how, how does this shape our theology or our understanding of who Jesus is. Now, in Revelation chapter five, we're gonna see both of these animals mentioned as it pertains to our view of God. Now, I remember as a kid, uh, I grew up in a, in a Christian home. Uh, my dad's a preacher, and, and as long as I can remember, I was a preacher. And, and so I grew up reading the Bible. I had a little kid's Bible, you know, as, as early as I can remember. And, and I would attempt to read the entire Bible as a kid, except the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation scared me to death. And I had heard some things about it. I had like, you know, opened up a couple times and there's like crazy animals and like people dying and stuff. And it was like, what is going on? I don't wanna read that. And I have a vivid memory of my dad trying to like coax me in to read the book of Revelation. Like, Jeremy, it's good news. You just like hang in there. I'm like, no way. Don't want any part of that because it's so bizarre. And, and many of you, maybe you've attempted to read Revelation before. You got a little bit confused and you went, that's bizarre, not sure what's going on. Or maybe you've read a bunch of books that come up with all sorts of theories on what's going on in the book of Revelation. Or maybe you just avoid it altogether. Well, the reality is why it's so confusing is because John, who's the, uh, the author of it, John had been a disciple of Jesus. He had followed Jesus around his earthly ministry. He's writing later in life. He's lived longer than most of the disciples lived. John subverts a lot of images. So John takes something that you expect, and you go, oh, I know where he's going with this. Then he flips it, and you're going, okay, I'm, I'm confused by that. That's not what I thought you were gonna do. And he does this with a variety of images. Now, we're gonna see this with the lion and the lamb image, but before we get there, uh, let me show you what he does with Jesus and a sword. Now, maybe you've heard that, that Jesus is coming back in Revelation, and, and he's gonna have a sword, and you're like, yeah, that, that kind of fits let me show you how John describes that. Revelation chapter one, verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Now again, if you're envisioning Jesus coming back with a sword, where do you think he's gonna hold the sword? In his hand, that's where you hold a sword if you're going to use it, that's how you would wield a sword. But he's not holding the sword in his hand, he's holding stars, so we're like, that's weird. And the sword is coming out of his mouth, like how, how does that work? And so again, John just kind of stops us in our tracks, we go, what, what's going on here? And people have struggled with this image to make sense of this. Is this a violent image or is it not a violent image? Is this, like what is going on here? And you can look at art throughout the centuries as people have attempted to picture this scene. Let me show you a few examples. In the 1200s, you have it portrayed like this, uh, Jesus in the middle, but I want you to notice which end the sword is facing. 
Maybe not the way you were imagining it when you imagined a sword coming out of his mouth, but a lot of the art through the centuries has depicted it this way. Here's one from the 1400s. Uh, Again, you see the sword is aimed at his mouth, uh, and you have a lot more uh, icons and, and symbols in this one. Another one around the same time, uh, again, shows the sword. And so this is a very popular way that they understood this verse, is that the sword was, was facing him. And so again, you might be going, well, why would it be like that? And here's the reality. It's because John is not showing Jesus like the conqueror that you would expect. He's not showing Jesus with a sword in his hand. It's in his mouth. And the fact that we don't even know how to imagine that shows what John is doing. John is flipping everything, going, hey, here's what you expect, but here's what you're actually going to get, and we're left to make sense of that to go, what on earth is going on? Now, we're gonna see the same thing happen because uh, this is not just for swords. You know, John kind of makes Jesus look like a circus act. He's a sword swallower. You know, he can do all this. You're like, that's strange. But John does it with the entire book, and John does it with all kinds of images. And and so I want you to to go to uh, Revelation chapter 5, and here's what I would tell you. Um, we're gonna get into this, this chapter a little bit, but if you wanna know how do you make sense of the whole book of Revelation, I think chapter five is key. It is the, the, the pivotal section in the book. It's how I understand the entire book of Revelation and what's going on. And so even if you get lost on the other chapters, go back to chapter five. I'd encourage you, uh, take what we're gonna go through today and you go, okay, this helps me to understand what John is doing. So again, Revelation is a different type of literature. John sees visions. Uh, God allows him to see certain stuff and then write it down. And so John does. And he writes down some weird stuff. And, he, and so here's what he writes down in Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Now again, this is a bunch of imagery. We're like, huh? What are we talking about? Uh, This is about the power of God, okay? So these scrolls represent what God has. This is this power that God has, but it's sealed. And it's this seal that is not an easy seal to break. And so an easier way to frame this is who can wield God's power? Who is able, who is worthy, who is righteous to wield the power of God? Now, depending on where you're at with your own view of God, if you think God exists at all, you probably put God's power above our power, right? That'd be a common thing, no matter what you imagine God. But God would probably be above us if you think God exists at all. Well, if you do think God exists and his power is above us, whoever can tap into that power, right, is going to have an advantage. So this has been a question that has been asked for centuries, who can wield the power of God? Popes have asked this question. Kings have asked this question. Prophets and presidents, who can wield the power of God? Because however God's power gets used is going to be a game changer. So in Revelation 5, John sets this up. There's the power of God, but it's sealed. What do we do about the seal? Go to verse 3. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. This is really bad news. John sees the power of God, sees that it's sealed up, and then he goes, okay, who can open it? 
and he looks around and no one is worthy. Nobody has the ability to open, to wield the power of God. Just imagine if, if God's power was left on the shelf. If, if God never used his power, all the wrongs in the world will not be made right. All that is broken will never be redeemed, will never be healed. It would be an incredible injustice if God's power could not be used. And this is what John is reacting to. So verse four, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. This is the logical reaction. If God's power is gonna go unused, let's all weep for the world because things will never be done the way they should if no one is able to wield God's power. And that's when we get to our misquoted verse of the day. Verse five. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Good news. There's a lion that can open it. And John's like, yes, I don't need to weep anymore. There's a lion. Now, if you're new to this, you're going, who the heck is Judah? Why do they have a lion? What's going on here? Now, we're in the book of Revelation, which again, if you've got a physical Bible, it's easier to understand this. You're all the way in the back of the Bible. This is a reference to the beginning of the Bible. So this is a reference to the book of Genesis. Now, again, I don't have the time to unpack this, but in between there, a lot of theology happens, a lot of things to make sense of, but this is a reference in the final book going all the way back to something that is mentioned in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. It's a prophecy. Now, again, this is a little bit hard to understand, but there's a guy named Jacob who gets renamed Israel. He becomes the father of all the sons that make up the nation of Israel. And so at the beginning of the nation of Israel, you have the father giving a blessing to each of his kids, who are, again, if you fast forward, they become the nation of Israel. And I want you to see what he says to his son Judah in particular. This is Genesis chapter 49. It says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Now, if you got a lot of siblings and your dad says this to you, you're having a good day, right? You're like, okay, dad, that's awesome. You're looking around at your siblings like, hear that? Hear what dad said? You guys are all bowing down to me. It gets even better. Judah, you are a lion's cub. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? If your dad calls you a lion, you're like, oh man, I've got it going on. Then it gets to this prophecy. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, catch this, until he to whom it belongs shall come. There will be another one shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So from this time on, in the lineage of Judah and this whole thing, you have this idea of the lion of the tribe of Judah. This will be the Messiah. This will be the one that will save Israel. It goes all the way back to this conversation. Now, again, if you're a Jew, uh, this is a pivotal conversation for you. This is a pivotal moment where you go, this is what we're looking for. The lion of the tribe of Judah, this is how the Messiah will come. And this shapes all the way into the book of Revelation, what John is told to look for. John, look for the lion 
of the tribe of Judah. Now, John is a good Jewish guy. He goes, oh yeah, Genesis 49. Why didn't I think of that? Of course, the lion will be able to wield the power of God. Now, today, uh, we have followed this example of this verse, and, and we look to the lion to be the Messiah today as well, because it makes sense for us. So most Christians are looking for God to be a lion, because that's what makes sense. That's who can wield the power of God. Anybody who has seen the Lion King knows lions are the apex predator. They're the big dogs. Of course, a lion could be the one to wield the, the power of God. It's a, it's a very violent animal. It works well for conquest or for any type of battle. You want the lion to be on your side if you're going in to a battle. Now, as I was wor- working on this message, I thought, I wonder what can kill a lion outside of humans. You know, like, like well, what animals can take lions down? And so I did a little Google search, uh, what kills a lion? And I came back with a whole bunch of videos of lions mauling and maiming a bunch of other animals. And I'm like, either Google doesn't understand what I'm asking, or there really is nothing that can take lions down uh, apart from humans. And, and so I, I was like, there's gotta be something. I mean, are lions just the top of the top? And, and then I remembered a conversation that uh, is, is a bit of a stretch, but it shows what could happen to actually take down a lion. Check this out. <laughs> That's the kind of mental gymnastics you've gotta go through to even imagine what takes down a lion, which is why this is one of our favorite images of God, because it is the top of the food chain, and it is so easy to imagine Jesus as a lion, and we go, yes, this is what makes sense. If you ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis famously uh, portrayed you know, Aslan, the, the, the Jesus figure, as a lion. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. It's such an easy image to, to grab onto and go, yes, this is what makes sense. But I wanna show you what John does next. And prepare yourself because it's a little bit shocking. Revelation five, verse six, the elder tells them, look for the lion. Here's the very next phrase. Then I saw a lamb. Now, in the original Greek, it's an emphasis on the size of the lamb, the word that's used. It's a tiny lamb, a little lamb. You know, in contrast to like a big burly lamb, I don't know if those exist, but uh, it's not a big burly lamb. It's a tiny little lamb. John says, looking as if it had been slain. Again, literally, recently slaughtered. It is freshly dripping blood. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Notice what Lamb does next. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Uh, No, that is not. That's for the lion. How dare he touch that? Verse eight. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. This is the beauty and the shock of the book of Revelation. That everyone is expecting a lion. Everyone is looking for a lion. And John is set up to see the lion, but there is no lion found that can wield the power of God. That is only in this little slaughtered lamb. See, what we realize in the book of Revelation and all throughout the New Testament 
is that Jesus was a very different Messiah than people were looking for. It's why so many people in that day didn't suddenly give their life and follow after Jesus because he didn't look the part. You see, when Jesus comes into to Jerusalem, it's known as the triumphal entry. This is the moment everyone thought, he's gonna take his kingdom now, he's gonna take over, and the way a king would do that, they would ride into a conquered city, and they would ride in on a war horse, the, the biggest, baddest horse they could find, and they would come in in this, this display of power. You know how Jesus rides into Jerusalem? On a donkey. And everyone went, what? what what's he doing, Why? Why is he coming in on a donkey? Kings don't come in on a donkey. You see, Jesus didn't look the part, and that's why many people missed him. See, if you look throughout the New Testament, here's where you gotta start getting uncomfortable. Uh, outside of Revelation 5, there are no other references to Jesus or God as a lion. This is the only example. And if you notice this example, John only used it to set up what everyone was expecting, and then there is no lion found that is going to open and wield the power of God. The lion's not there. And throughout the New Testament, the writers never used this image. And so it would be more accurate to say that thinking of Jesus as a lion is a Jewish idea. Because that is what, all throughout the Old Testament, that is what they were looking for. But when we get to the New Testament writers, those guys that actually spent time with Jesus, that, that were watching him for year after year, that, that saw all that he did, they don't touch this image. They leave it behind because it does not fit who they have seen in the person of Jesus. And so if you and I want to follow Jesus today, we have to take our cue from the New Testament writers and go, what did they do? Once they had seen Jesus, what did they do with this image? And the idea is they didn't adopt it. They said, this doesn't fit Jesus, and they left it behind. They might be saying, oh, Pastor, uh, I'm pretty sure that there's a reference to a lion in the New Testament. I, I, I can't think of it. Uh, well, here's the deal. Uh, there actually is uh, a reference to, to someone as a lion, and Peter does this, but brace yourself. It's probably not what you were expecting. Ready? Here's what Peter says. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. See, when they thought about who, who captures the spirit of a lion, they're like, that's not Jesus. It would actually be Satan. Satan captures the essence of the lion, not, not the lamb. That, that's Jesus. And so they leave this image behind. They do not adopt the lion and the lamb. They just refer to him as the lamb. If you keep reading the book of Revelation after chapter five, you will find dozens of references to Jesus as the lamb. You will find zero references to the lion. You will not find Jesus referred to as a lion anywhere in the New Testament. But if you look for Jesus as the lamb, you're gonna find that all over the place. Because this was the image that those who had seen Jesus with their own eyes said, this is who he is. This fits him, not the image of a lion. Then you get to Revelation 5, verse nine. John says this. And they sang a new song. Why? Because the old song was about a lion. And once they had seen Jesus, the old song didn't work anymore. But they didn't have any songs about the lamb coming and, and being victorious. So they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. 
And with your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Basically, what we all were looking for from Genesis 49 on, we just thought it was gonna be a lion. Uh, we found it. Uh, we, we have the person who, who's gonna do everything we were hoping. It, he just did it as a lamb. He didn't do it as a lion. He didn't look anything like Alliance. See, they were all expecting the Messiah to be a lion. And what John says, what the rest of the New Testament writers reinforce, is that the lion was not worthy to wield the power of God. Only the lamb could do that. And so if you and I want to follow Jesus, it's time for us to adopt the new song. And it would make no sense to go back to the old song once you have seen what they have shown us about who Jesus really is. Now, you might be here today and you're going, wow, this one feels like a bit of a bummer because uh, I had this whole cool image of God in my mind and now the pastor's like challenging that and I don't know if I can keep thinking about God as a lion. It feels like I've lost something, okay? So that's you. Let's play a little game together. I'm gonna show you a picture and I want you to uh, think about what year you think this might be from and just take a guess and uh, I'll give you a little tip. If you're a car person, you're gonna have an advantage uh, in this little game, okay? So here's the photo. I want you to guess uh, what year is this from. If you have a guess, feel free, shout it out. Okay, everyone kind of feels a little bit uh, timid right now. Uh, We're not quite sure, I feel like it's a trap, okay? Here's the reality. Um, if you look at the same photo and you zoom back a little bit, here's what you see. <laughs> now, I don't know what your first guess was, but I suspect you may have changed it a little bit at least uh, once you saw the second, the, the, the zoom back photo because you see something you didn't see before. And so it would be silly to go back and go, no, these are real cars on the street once you've seen what you did not see before. It's the same thing of Jesus. It would make no sense to go back to calling Jesus a lion once you've seen what the New Testament writers are trying to get you to see. He's not the lion. The lion couldn't open the seals. The lion wasn't worthy. It was only the lamb. And that is what captures the spirit and the essence of who Jesus is. What a difference some perspective makes. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, writes like this, and, and again, you might go, well, this sounds dumb. Like, why on earth would we think of Jesus as a Messiah, as a lamb? Like, this is the bottom of the food chain. Why on earth would we think of God like that? Let me show you Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1. He said, Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. If you think about it, pretty strange message. Our God was killed. That's, that's our message. We, we preach Christ crucified. The lamb was slain. That's our message. This is a stumbling block to Jews. Why? Because they're looking for a lion, and Jesus doesn't look like that. It's foolishness to Gentiles, those who hadn't uh, grown up with you know, all the uh, lion of Judah. They're just going, why would you pick a lamb? That, that, that makes no sense. Why would you portray Christ crucified? Why would your God be like that? But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
So Paul says, look, you might, you might go, why do you preach Christ crucified? That, that's a weird message. But in that message, in the lamb who was slain, this is actually the wisdom of God, and it reveals God's power. And, and you might go, no, that's, that doesn't make any sense. And Paul goes, yeah, lots of people have, have stumbled over this. Lots of people have had a hard time with, with Christ crucified. It's a strange message, unlike any other religion you've ever heard. We preach Christ crucified crucified, the lamb that was slain, was the only one worthy to open the seal, worthy to wield the power of God. See, if you are looking for a lion, Jesus doesn't fit the bill. If you're looking for this apex predator who's gonna come in and by force control everybody, you're gonna have a hard time understanding who Jesus was and what Jesus is all about. But if you begin to adopt the image of the lamb, Okay, how would that help me better understand Jesus? All of a sudden, so many things that Jesus did and said and so many things that he is doing today will begin to make sense for you. Now, for us, what does this mean? It means that if you and I want to follow Jesus, that we need to follow the lamb and realize that our power is going to come from unexpected places. Our power is not gonna come from the way the world would tell us, this is how you're gonna get power, this is how you're gonna get influence. No, no, no. Our power comes, if Jesus is the lamb, from sacrifice and surrender. That's where our power is gonna come from. From giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. From laying down our own wants because we have followed the lamb. And we see in that example the wisdom of God and the power of God, and we choose to embrace that in our life today. Let me close with something that Justin Bronson Berenger said. It wasn't the might of the world's militaries, but the meekness of the slaughtered lamb that bought our freedom. So if you are a Christian, and you have submitted your life to Jesus Christ, it wasn't the lion that got you there. It was the slaughtered little lamb. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you help us wrap our minds around this image? Help us understand that when we so badly want you to be a lion, that very desire can often cause us to miss you, to misunderstand you, to, to expect you to be something that you're not. And many people throughout history have not been able to submit to you because you don't look like a lion. But if we will listen to the, what John is saying, what the, Paul is saying, what these New Testament who had seen you, if we would listen to their example and understand you to be the perfect lamb who was slain for us, that in that image is the wisdom and the power of God, we can go and live in accordance with that. We can begin to see our power in surrender and in sacrifice and laying down our lives the way we watched you lay down your life for us. So may we be a community defined by your wisdom, defined by your power, because we do not expect it from the normal places of the world. But we know that it comes from this Messiah to all the nations will bow. And may we sing a new song about the lamb who has overcome. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.